one of the things we have to recognize in the cost of money is that so much of that cost is the cost of keeping the system in place. The power and control in how money moves is in large part about the cost of stabilization versus the cost of disruption. People who haven't historically had access to the system deserve access to the system and it's screwed up that they don't have it. That's wrong, but it's access to a system that doesn't work because at some level, it is work and it is cost. It takes cost to actually change the system. Welcome to a special CEO.world podcast series, Money and Power, with Joy Anderson, founder of the Criterion Institute, and Vicki Saunders, founder of CEO. Systems and patterns of power and money are sometimes hard to see. Joy and Vicki identify the systems that make up this world and the money and power dynamics within them so that we can better understand how to transform our world. Here we are again. Uh, good morning, Joy. How are you? I'm great. It's Tuesday morning, which for those of you who are listening to these, you don't know that we do these every Tuesday morning, but I've now come to understand it's Tuesday morning and therefore it's Vicky. <laughs> uh, it's a great way to start the day and think about what what is calling us in the world these days. And so for me, one of the things that I've been witnessing a lot is the cost of money and the rules attached to different kinds of money and how a lot of this is kind of obscured. I see what the cost and what the playbook is attached to VC. I see some of that around debt financing. I see costs around foundation grants or government funding. One of the things I wonder about is, do people see that money has a cost associated with it? Like the kind of money that you go after. I remember this one example. I was working at um, as an entrepreneur in residence, one of these incubator accelerator thingies a few years ago this amazing company that was doing really well was saying, okay, so I just got my first round of that government grant for startups and now I'm going to do the second grant. And I'm like, why? And they kind of looked at me strange and said, what do you mean why? And I said, well, how much does it cost you to go get that $30,000, which is the next round grant? How long does it take? How many hours? Whatever. And they're like, oh yeah, it's tons of paperwork and I have to do blah, blah, blah. And they went on and on. And I'm like, and how much would it cost you? Like how much effort would it be to go get a customer for 30K? And they're like, oh, so much less. And I'm like, hello, what are you doing? Like, why would you go do that? Well, it's free money. I'm like, you just told me it wasn't free. It took all of that effort and it's easier for you to get a customer than go do that. What are you doing? And then you have a customer. Yeah, and then you actually have a customer instead of a logo at the end of your slide deck. (laughs) You know, like, what are you doing? And they were like, oh. Everyone was doing it because there were these grants available and everyone's filling it out without actually really recognizing the cost of it. And so I think about that all the time when I just, when I'm sitting in front of something and someone goes, there's money available in my head. I, first of all, I hate filling out forms. I'd rather talk to somebody like a customer, but I, I wonder if this is just me or if you see this, cause you're such a goddess of finance and, and seeing all of the patterns that are below and the power dynamics that are around these things. Wouldn't it be cool if I was actually like a Greek (laughs) god and I had like a big ass, I want to be like Thor or something and I have a big hammer that I can bring down and just smash system. Like, I know you always say we're like goddesses, but like, what if we actually had lightning bolts and shit? Like, wouldn't that be cool? Well, by the time we are done with these podcasts on this earth, I think we will be (laughs) called something. (laughs) I'm not sure what it will be. (laughs) Not sure. 
all right, so what that makes me think of, so I, I love this framing of one, recognizing that there are playbooks, like full stop. The rules around money are intentionally opaque. And the people who manage to those rules are, well, they're one of two things. Like I think sometimes in like government funding and other places, and I know you sometimes disagree with me, but I actually like the processes around government funding because I believe that it is public money. And I think all of the processes around transparency that make sure like, yes, I was part of a process recently that put a lot of government money out and people complained through it that it took too long and should just get out into the world. I'm like, yeah, but it's taxpayers' money. And sometimes I actually like, I, I know some of it's just weird and stupid, but I like the transparency around it. And I believe there should be like, every time I have to do a competitive bid, I whine. But then I think, I'm really glad we have to do competitive bids because otherwise it would be absolutely certain that the same guy got the money every time, even though Truly. competitive bids, yeah. they disrupt that, but yeah. blah, blah, blah. There's the rule book. There's a power analysis of the rule book or the playbook. So a couple of different directions we can go as, as always. But one is I often feel the pressure to you know, write the playbook down for people so people can have access to it and sort of wave a magic wand and say, here is actually, I mean, I wonder what it would look like if we could do that. Like if we could actually make a magical kind of thinking, okay? but if we could wave a magic wand and all of the playbooks were revealed, right? Like some big football game and all of the coaches had to like put their playbooks on the screen while the football game was going on. Sorry, American football. Would that help? Yes. Yes. 100%. Totally. I did not know. So in venture capital as one example, because it's just an easy one to take a hit at. I was in Silicon Valley making a pitch with this like 17 slide deck or something. And I was going through it all and the person was nodding. Yep. Yep. Got it. Makes sense. Da, 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 da. And then I, they looked at the projections on the financials on the second last slide. And in year five, our financial projections said $68 million in revenue. And they're like, oh, yeah, not interested. I was like, well, what do you mean? What just happened? What did I miss? And it turns out that if you don't have at least $100 million in year five as your financial projections, you do not get funded. It's not a venture funded. And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? Who made that up? And everyone's like, duh, Saunders, you don't know that? You have to at least project that you're going to get beyond $100 million or we're not interested. And I walked away thinking, like, doesn't everyone know that these are just made up numbers? Like, I could go change that number. Would it help? Oh, no, but you're showing us that you're not shooting big enough. 100 million bucks in year five. And I went around and I asked tons of people, I'm like, is that a thing? Oh, yeah, that's a thing. Well, if I knew that, I would have stuck it in there. Okay, that's my question, though. So if we made all the playbooks visible, if the rules are more clear, one is, are people more likely to simply, with a huge caveat of like, I am constantly reminded and I do always know I don't want to mess up the system just as the next person gets access to it, right? So I do think from a pure access standpoint, if you've never had the privilege to be able to learn the rules and know what you're supposed to do and what you're not supposed to do, then absolutely we should democratize that information. But these rules are fucking crazy. No, completely. Yeah. To translate what I think you're saying is 
what you're saying is if we put those out there, then everyone will just do those things. Or legitimate them in some way. Like, and this is a weird power thing, right? Is private informal power, or I mean, they have formal power as VCs, but like, if we take that particular rule set, make it transparent, one is it validates it as if it's a rule set that is real. That is an unspoken thing that actually isn't a rule. I mean, it's a playbook, I guess. Yeah, I hear I hear you on that side of things. For me, the, the piece is, if you start to understand that like these are the kinds of things that people who fund through this kind of vehicle expect, it's important for you to know like that's a thing. Maybe that specific example is like way too down in the weeds. I don't know, but, but most rules, most playbooks are in the weeds. So they do abstract back to some kind of weird principles sometimes, but most systems are way more incoherent than we actually think they are. So partly I'm afraid what would happen is we would write the playbook the way it's quote unquote supposed to work, which actually then still isn't actually what happens. Right. Maybe it's, there's a simpler level around this, but just recognizing that there is a cost to all kinds of capital. No money is free. Well, that's a good point. Like all these pieces, right? Like no money is free. There's time associated with each of these different pieces. So to your transparency point, I think it's extremely important that there is transparency, certainly around taxpayer money going out into the world, competitive bids, et cetera. The thing that I've just been witnessing and feeling so strongly these days is that there are rules attached to how money is going out the door that are based on the past. And it's very hard to use capital in new ways to get to a new world when all the rules are based on what we've experienced in the past and people thinking like, this is the way you do things. I was just reading a, a blog last night about for the 1.7 billion, whatever it is, the US philanthropy dollars that are coming out as a result of bonds and loans. And I read this really interesting article. I don't know who wrote it. I noticed that Jed Emerson had tweeted it. And so I, I read it. <laughs> I love how authorship, <laughs> you just follow random things. Anyway, there was this article in a philanthropic journal about this. And they were problematizing the bonds because at some level, it's a really good thing, right? We're actually, for these five foundations, going to double the amount of money going out this year, where normally it would have constricted in their playbook. They actually average over three years. They don't immediately reduce as soon as their investments go down. They keep a rolling three-year average because blah, blah, blah. That's how they handle their liquidity. And therefore, you don't have a spike and a drop. And you can actually plan once you're a spike or a you don't go up and down, not as many vicissitudes and how much money you're putting out. And so that if there's a blip in the stock market, you don't suddenly change your philanthropic giving. What's interesting is doubling the amount of philanthropy going out through loans. What this guy's critique was, it is reinforcing that foundations are really their corpus. He did, made a reference to the ongoing question that Harvard is a hedge fund with a university attached. Yeah, love that. So are these really investment funds with philanthropy attached? Is maintaining their corpus, their actual professional job? Well, this is the problem of financial engineering. It's taken over everything. 
So Ford Foundation, I don't know what I'm talking about, but this is what I'm going to say out loud. <laughs> Ford Foundation has what, 13 billion, 17 billion, something like that under management. I love how we don't actually have actual facts yeah. in the way of actually. No, not at all. But like, here's, here's what I noticed. And I'm asking the dumb questions. You have $13 billion under management. And this whole thing about like, I only put out 5% a year is like the minimum that you're supposed to put out as a foundation, right? So they say, oh gosh, there's more money needed this year because we're in a really tough time economically. We need to put out more money. And you have $13 billion sitting there. You're like, we need to borrow money. And I'm thinking to myself, what? Why are you borrowing money when you're sitting on $13 billion? I understand the answer to this question. I'm just saying it's an insane answer. It's a completely insane answer. The fact that Ford Foundation is going to go borrow a bunch of this money means someone's benefiting. Bankers are getting fees off this thing and benefiting from it. Someone came to them and said, oh, you better keep your endowment at the level it is and we'll engineer that over here, but come and borrow money over here. And so it's just like all financial engineering. Yes, it is. And... I will say it's creative engineering, right? And this is, for me, the core point is somebody is actually using financial engineering to think themselves out of a box because the box is 5%. And my real bother with the 5% is that it actually forces everybody to think that their investments have to actually return 5, 6, 7% because you're giving out 5%. And so you have to make more than that And that logic sort of leads to all kinds of, you know, we can't possibly do X, Y, or Z with our investments. I like this moment of financial engineering. I think it's got weird. It both reinforces the playbook of what is the point of foundations and it messes with the assumptions of what you can do in any given moment. And it's, it messes with an assumption of scarcity. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Cause they do have a shit ton of power and a shit ton of capital. And if you have capital, you can borrow capital and you could borrow capital, which ostensibly means you're increasing your risk. You could borrow capital to be able to be more generous because in the worst case scenario, their endowment tanks because we continue to go into a recession and $13 billion becomes four, at which point a billion dollars of debt on a $4 billion endowment still gives you $3 billion. It still gives you a lot of money to play. It just is such part of this extractive mentality that makes me crazy. Like, I mean, I've just learned so much about the finance systems in the last decade, but certainly recently when I started CEO, one of the things that people would say to me is, wait a sec, it's a 0% interest loan. You want to get a million women, billion dollar fund. How are you going to maintain your fund if it's 0%? And I remember the first time I heard that question, I was like, what do you mean? And then I realized, like, I am not here to maintain a fund. It's not the point of maintaining a fund. It's to have impact. Why, why would you think that because when I say a billion dollar fund, we want to maintain the fund? Like, it's, it's super bizarre. To me, and anyone in the finance space is like, what's wrong with you? Like, of course, that's what you need to do. You set a billion dollar fund, therefore you have to keep a billion dollar fund. I'm like, who cares if it's $956 million? So this goes to a point that, that when you first were talking earlier in this conversation, what, what I wrote down is 
one of the things we have to recognize in the cost of money is that so much of that cost is the cost of keeping the system in place. That part of what we're absorbing in these processes, like the, the power and control in how money moves is in large part about the cost of stabilization, the cost of stabilizing the system with the players in power in their you know, butts in seats, right? So that they have their butt in the seat that is the seat of power so that it stays there and that we have really stable chairs. Sorry, I'm looking at weird metaphors <laughs> this morning. I have to go back to the story. Yes. Okay. But I think often, and thinking about the difference between the cost of keeping the system in place, the cost of stability versus the cost of disruption. Because I actually think one of the things I've always noticed, and this is my pushback on the whines about the playbook of money, my experience, and I think I've said this before, but being at 85,000 accelerators, when I talk to entrepreneurs, and, and this is maybe my resistance to making the playbook visible, is what entrepreneurs would ask is, how can you make it all really clear so that I can know exactly where I can get money? We need the massive data system in the sky that says exactly who has the exact kind of money that I need at this exact moment. And while I have a shit ton of empathy for that, having been an entrepreneur looking for money and wanting it at a certain moment, I have also made a conscious decision, like my, my fear in that is the instinct behind making the rules transparent is so that I can have access to it, not to try to make a better system. I really want to continue to know, and I want to have people who haven't historically had access to the system, deserve access to the system, and it's screwed up that they don't have it. That's wrong, but it's access to a system that doesn't work. and so. I feel like I keep saying the both on this one because at some level it is work and it is cost. It takes cost to actually change the system in systems in flux are often costly in different ways. Banking rules that end up really, really fixed that say, this is exactly the kind of loan that we will accept and these terms, and this is who you have to be as a borrower. All of that is transparent, but it also is transparent to ensure that that's how that works versus so much of what I love and what I hate about direct private capital is that the rule set is completely unknown. Yeah, it's totally. Yeah. yeah. It's just like, there still is one. You're really clear who has power. It drives me crazy when private investors are like, I need to do all this due diligence. I was like, no, you don't. You really don't have to. There's no rule that says you have to. You know, I have a couple of friends who literally make investments based on, I actually got half a million dollars based on one conversation once. Totally. And those don't happen very often, but you don't have to do. Right. Well, those experiences like I've had prove to you that it doesn't have to be the way people say it has to be. Anything is truly possible. And my experience over the last 25 years with capital is that it's really relational. 
it's very much based on investing in people. The really good investors in an instant say, there's something about you that makes sense to me. It's super individual and it's super biased. Super. Yes. If last week was complexity, this is contradiction. Yeah, completely. I mean, really, it is super biased that way. This model we have is like a collective is deciding. Collective intelligence is selecting who's getting money this way. But I want to go back to this, like the cost of stability and the cost of keeping things in place to maintain your fund. Like it doesn't make sense to me because at the moment, I mean, maybe it's just because the game is completely played out right now. We're at the end of it. We're at the end of this economic game because there's literally nowhere to go. Five people have the same wealth as half the planet. And last week, Bezos borrowed a billion dollars at 0.4% interest and announced a new fund for small, medium-sized businesses on the platform where they could apply for a million-dollar line of credit at between 7 and 20% interest. So he borrowed at 0.4% and he's going to loan it out at between 7 and 20%. This is the new world. Those who can actually negotiate and get a crap load of money can turn it around. And for those who are super starved, unable to get access to capital because of like the crazy times we're in, are literally paying that premium. It was so simple. I mean, I've been trying to find ways to like write tight little posts on these things for what we see underneath the surface, but it's rarely that clear. It's rarely that extractive and nasty. And it was literally three lines. Borrow at this, do at this. It's grade nine math, boom. And people went crazy. I have like 50,000 something views on this thing, hundreds and hundreds of comments and reactions of people saying this is insane because we can actually see it. Whereas that kind of stuff is happening every single day. It just has 14 layers to it. And now it's completely exposed. Where do we go with that? And so he is destabilizing the system even more by being on the way to the first trillionaire. There is no stability in the system anymore, as far as I can tell. It's like super anti-fragile or whatever, the opposite of anti-fragile, fragile. fragile. (laughs) I'm thinking of of that book, (laughs) anti-fragile. We want to be anti-fragile, but we're fragile. (laughs) This is essentially why I do systems change work. And, And maybe this is partly back to our, if we made the rules exposed, often what's exposed are the top level rules, right? The application process, the here's our screens, here's what we ask for, but nobody's showing the gears and mechanisms underneath it, right? They're showing like the flowers that are growing above the grass because what we're doing is planting seeds, but they're not showing the like, I don't want to make soil ugly, but imagine if it's like some mucky, disgusting soil underneath it that's like some completely entangled I'm sorry, I'm working with this metaphor. Like, I think I was planting all weekend, so I think of roots as beautiful. But like, imagine if they were evil roots or something. The racial bias that's underneath these pieces, the economic bias that's underneath them. Like, there's just so many issues underneath it. We may have these rules, and then there's just like all of our structural inequities. Well, yes, that's also true. There's bias in all of these things. If above the surface is like, ta-da, here's what I look like on the surface and I've shown up in the world, the thing that it took to get there, the mechanics underneath it are often not visible. The surface is. And so how do we make sure that in making the quote unquote playbook visible, 
we're actually making the underlying mechanics visible. I feel like there's some emergent wisdom that's coming out of us around this information, right? And it's really because of the rules that are attached to a lot of the kinds of funding we're out there, we keep staying stuck in the same world. And it's how do you get capital to go towards things that will unlock new possibilities without knowing what's going to come out at the other end? Like we keep funding things that we know if we do this, I'm buying these outcomes over here. How do we even know what the outcomes are of the future? We didn't know that we were going to have coronavirus and all of a sudden that gets injected in. I feel like there's a lot of systems out there and approaches that we're taking with our funding that assume, to your point, stability, that assume conditions that we understand. That's not the world we're in anymore. Yeah. yeah. And I think just trying one more time at this point and then not kicking a dead horse anymore. But part of it is I am watching people obsessed with moving capital, even no matter where it's moving to. We just need to move capital without actually looking at the processes, the structures, the analytics underneath that movement that actually define what it is really. We're seeing so many funds emerge where the terms on the surface are look super easy, but because we're in such an unknown time, the fine print is everything right now. Totally. Right? Yeah. We're looking at one of these government loans and I'm just like, he looks wow. And I don't know. And what could happen? And do I step into that relationship with X unknown bank in such a way to have access to the capital? Or is that tethering me to something that I, I really don't understand? We're seeing a lot of that out there, right? Where people are literally giving back loans, not just because they took them when they shouldn't have, but also because they're like, do I want to be more in debt? And so there's now a lot of debt capital available out there at quite low term, you know, low interest rates. Where, and people are just going, no, nope, don't want to be in debt anymore. And so it's really starting to call to the surface the economic model that we have that's based on debt. Everything's based on debt, right? Loan money out and you get more back. And this whole, what happens if this is no longer a reality? What if that doesn't you know, occur? The kind of access to financial services, access to finance has been the mantra for so long in you know, women's economic empowerment. And what we enabled was access to debt with gender equality as fragile as it is right now, I am scared to death that we have put a set of people, and I'll just speak to women, but I think this is also true of all kinds of other structural inequities, where we have said, to be able to play, you have to have access to debt. Okay, so that's important until this shit happens, at which point We've got a whole bunch of folks who still don't have the same fundamental equalities in the world or equities, right? Whatever, whatever language means that it will work for you, that the system is not working for people. So now in the recovery, the people who are in debt are going to be put behind, right? I'm thinking about this, the story of like, we're, we're looking at a couple of funds starting that are literally targeting the entrepreneurs who are shutting down their businesses now and then will pop up back up 
know, pop back up like daisies after the recession and say, lo and behold, I've got a new idea that's in the new normal because I'm an experienced entrepreneur, blah, blah, blah. And we know that women and other people who experience ongoing marginalization, when we're at that moment, women will be judged differently than others for their quote unquote failure to survive. And some people will be rewarded for shutting down appropriately and popping back up and others will not be. It terrifies me that we have spent decades having a story of financial inclusion that meant financial inclusion in debt markets that now means that we have folks who are experiencing the same structural inequalities because we didn't address the underlying inequalities. We didn't work on gender norms. We didn't really work on equality. We worked on inclusion. And so now you're included in a system that doesn't work for you, that's going to not work for you now. Well, it's going to indebt you forever. But you're fine. Yeah, totally. So now you have access to something that where basically everything's been extracted out of it. Welcome in. (laughs) And now you're in debt basically forever and you can't get out of it. Right. And the system is not in the recovery. You are not getting the benefits of the recovery in the same way. You are not being recovered at the same rate. The people who get screwed get screwed doubly. And I want us to think more cautiously about that. And I want us to work on the root causes of some of these structural inequities. I want us to work on racial, gender bias. I want us to work on the biases and not just the inclusion. Boom. And on that note, we'll see you next week. (laughs) That's a great place to end. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks everyone for being on this journey with us as we unpack our brains out loud. (laughs) We greatly appreciate your patience and look forward to your comments online. Thanks, Joy. (laughs) Bye. Thank you for listening to the Money and Power series on the Shio.World podcast with Vicki Saunders and Joy Anderson. If this conversation resonated with you, please share it with a friend and subscribe on your favorite listening platform. To learn more, go to sheo.world and criterioninstitute.org.